today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, is China threatening us if we don't take their Huawei 5G network? Also, an odd day for Canadian politics as a liberal has to stand down because of racist comments. And Unifor is vowing to make this year's auto show the worst for General Motors. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. China is threatening reprisals if Canada does not, uh, or does decide rather, to ban uh, Huawei from the 5G network construction. To talk more about all of this, uh, Ferry Der Kekhov is with us, senior fellow, Faculty of Social Sciences, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Ferry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. With pleasure. Uh, are, are you surprised at how this is continuing to unravel? Are you surprised where we got, or where we have uh, got to from, of course, the arrest of the CFO back in December? If I look at the big picture, I come up with a appreciation of how things have evolved on the international stage. Some years ago, China was growing, but was trying to cuddle the favors, the recognition, the appreciation of the West. Now we have Xi Jinping, who is in full power for life, uh, and maybe beyond, you never know with him. And, uh, and the Chinese now are the second most important and most successful economy in the world. They're growing militarily. And so they've reached a stage where they don't give a damn about you and me and Canada and many other countries. The only country they respect is the U.S., which puzzles them. And so they negotiate. But with the rest of the world, they'll try and impose their will to the point to tell you that I'm even worried about Taiwan. Could China actually start uh, really waging a conflict, a war to recapture Taiwan? You, d- you never know. But the way it's going, I'm very worried. So you talk about now Canada within that perspective. We count for very, very little in their mind. And so any threat that we utter is going to bring even more retaliation from China. And if we decide not to go Huawei for evident, uh, you know, counter-spy reasons, the Chinese are going to try and make our life even more miserable. So there's no question about that. So that's the big picture. Is China threatening us if we don't use their network? Well, they're, they're getting, they're, you know, they're, they're trying very hard to make sure that the U.S. doesn't do that to them. Uh, you know, it's not the first time that Canada has issue with Huawei. Uh, when we were with WinMobile, for instance, we knew perfectly well that in the core of the system, because Win was selling Huawei products, but there was also in the broad system a, a, a Huawei, uh, I won't go into the technology of it, but there was some serious issue. And I, and I think that the successor to WinMobile, free or whatever it's called now, uh, has taken the measure, but I know it was a concern then. So if it was a concern at the time, Clearly, when you move to 5G, where the technology is even more penetrating, there is some concern. And I'm pretty convinced that China will retaliate in trade on, on some trade matters against us if we do not live up to their expectation. I wouldn't be surprised at all. 
Uh, but the U.S. has already said that they're not interested in Huawei's 5G backbone. So uh, I- I- isn't that already a done deal? And again, done, Can- Canada was one it, of the well, Canada was one of the the only of the of the five eyes to, to to sort of not be involved here. So has that ship not already sailed? The, the ship has sailed. The U.K. I think has declared the same thing. Yeah. But the the discussion between China, the U.S., and the discussion between China and Canada are two different things. And the, the, you know, because we we still are controlling Mrs. Meng, uh, you know, the CFO of Huawei, all of that is good fodder for the Chinese. But you're absolutely right. Technically, we, 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 we're not going to change. If the, if the Americans are not going to go Huawei, I think we'll certainly not be going there. But that doesn't prevent the Chinese from uttering threats and, 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 and you know, in condemning our, our lack of... Uh, what is it? Impartiality, as they would call it. Uh, does China, I mean, I mean, China must know what our laws are, what our treaties are, what our extradition treaties are and such. Does it think that it can come between Canada and the United States? Is that what it's trying to do here? Well, there was a, certainly a hope like that. And I, I must say that the moment Trump decided that he could use Mrs. Meng as a political ploy in his negotiation on the trade side with China, Clearly, the Chinese jumped on that to say, you see, it's all politics and you, your, your legislation is phony. But of course, they know that our legislation. They know the extradition treaty. Uh, but they're putting as much pressure as possible to make sure that Mrs. Meng doesn't find herself in the U.S., where the negotiation will be much more difficult. So they're, they're putting pressure, knowing full well that we have to respect our legislation. You're absolutely right. But that doesn't change the fact they'll put pressure and pressure thinking that, you know, with two, two person in jail, one person now condemned to death, maybe, maybe the poor little Canadians will bend and eventually the minister of justice will say, okay, no case here, and Mrs. Meng is free. You, you know, the, the Chinese are ready to put as much pressure as it can. And, and I have to give credit for our, to our government to, uh, to, you know, not to bend. And I have to say that when it comes to the death penalty, there has been a, a, a good measure of international support for our case, including at the UN. So for once, we're not totally alone in that case. Uh, the only support that is rather meek, although it, it does happen be, below Trump level, is at the American presidency level. Uh, it seems for years that China has been the golden goose. Uh, for decades, we've been doing what we can to win China, uh, China's trust and, and, and to yeah. bend for China. And it, it seems that we're doing more for China than China is doing for us at this point. Uh, how, does China, uh, uh, how does China prevent being viewed as a bully in all of this? <laughs> And I mean, what is this doing for Huawei? What is this doing for business? Well, you know, the, the, now that the trend for Huawei is not, not the U.S., not Canada, not the U.K. and whatnot, China is going to move along and uh, develop the Huawei product in, in Africa, in Latin America, and elsewhere, and they'll just give up on penetrating the, uh, the, the European Union, although I'm not particularly sure that the, the Poles and the Czechs and others may not shift. And that is even better for the Chinese. If they can get Huawei everywhere, at least they they can divide the Europeans and they can divide, you know, the, the international, international market. So I, I, the, the, the bullying is, you know, I, I think we should stop lamenting the bullying because it's going to happen anyway. But uh, the, 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 the longer term perspective is we haven't been dealing with China 
in any intelligent fashion going back even to the Harper years. The only guy who seemed to have it right was, was Jean Chrétien. Harper took four years before realizing that China was an important trading partner. And, 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 uh, and unfortunately, Trudeau started on the right path, banking on his father's trip to China and the opening to China. But then he, he screwed it up when he went to China announcing that we were going to engage in a bilateral trade negotiation, even though the, the, the I's were not uh, dotted and the T were not crossed. And so we came to that rather odd uh, time when Trudeau basically had to admit that, no, it hadn't been confirmed, and the Chinese didn't like the notion of progressive inclusive that we were trying to spell. And that's the first time that I see a government like ours so ill-prepared that they wouldn't have it, you know, basically confirmed before Trudeau went on that trip. So the, the, our relationship with China wasn't doing well. And of course, Mrs. Meng's story put it down and down into even uh, below the, the, the crust of Earth. So I, I, it's, it's uh, the, the, the fact that China is an essential partner. The only country that has actually some weight against China is the U.S., not because of not just military prowess, but because it has a deficit. And that's one of the few things where Trump actually has it right, because he can do more damage to Chinese export than he can do to uh, American export to China. But you see what is happening. A lot of countries are getting very worried, and a lot of business people are getting worried about where China is going. So at the end, all of that is not good for international economic, international political relation, and I wouldn't be surprised to see on top of that a, um, a crisis on the stock market. Other than that, I'm an optimist. <laughs> uh, has Canada uh, been naive to China in regard to doing business? Have we given too much? Uh, I don't know whether we've given too much, but I can tell you that from a foreign policy perspective, I think Canada has been either absent or naive. Uh, we saw it in, when the prime minister went to China. We saw it when we had the G20 session where Trudeau bailed out of a meeting with Abe and the Australian foreign minister, the prime minister. I think we don't have a real foreign policy other than some of the valid pronouncement by uh, by our foreign minister, who uh, Christian Freeland seems to be to be having at least a, a concept of what it's all about, and she made two or three rather good speeches, but that doesn't translate into an articulated security policy and a foreign policy. And that's why we have a defense strategy or defense review that is hanging somewhere in the sky because it is not underpinned by a real sense of our foreign policy and national security. And that's why I'm very worried. Why is China not upset with the United States or as upset with the United States as they are Canada, considering it was the United States that initiated these charges against uh, the Huawei CFO? Well, they know perfectly well where it came from. and But as I said earlier, they want to avoid Ms. Meng going to the say because that would make a real, real, real issue difficult because I don't think the, the American will lose it, use it as a, in, in their commercial negotiation. But, but you know, as I, as I said all along, there's, we're facing a world where there are two emperors facing one another. The Chinese uh, emperor is on the way up, and the American emperor is withdrawing. 
And that is really how you should look at how it evolves presently in, in, in the world. And so the Chinese respect the strength and the might of the U.S., and therefore they will lead, deal with the U.S. on an even keel, thinking that the long term will give them the advantage. Look at what is happening in the South China Sea. Ten years ago, we were promised by the Chinese they would, they, yeah, they would do some drilling in some of the islands, uh, the Paracels and others. But no, 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 we're not going to build anything military. We're going to have some nice little place for our fishermen. Look, go and look at it how it looks now. It's, it's the most militarized island that you can dream of. So the Chinese are walking, walk, running. Uh, winning the marathon on the international stage and the Americans are withdrawing and we are weakened by that withdrawal and the disruption of the alliance. When you have the President of the United States who think that maybe the U.S. should withdraw from NATO, it's not just nice and cute for Putin, whom he loves, but it's also very good for the Chinese. So it, it's, this is the kind of world we live in, and that's where I come back to my earlier point about our foreign policy. We don't seem to actually have a concept in, in, in our foreign policy about what, go, what is going on in the world, other than justifiably lamenting the, the dereliction of democracy in the world, which is also an issue that worries me considerably. And I can, if I have a few more minutes, I'll tell you exactly why I'm worried. Go ahead. What was the most single, most important crisis in the last 20 or even 10 years? 2008. Why? 2008 showed the rest of the world that the vaunted economic system, capitalism, international liberal order actually didn't work, or at least didn't seem to be working. And you've seen a lot of countries, particularly in Asia, turning towards the Chinese model, which is a directed economic freedom, in a sense that the, economy, the market can work, but it is totally directed by the government. And you've seen accompanying that trend, moving away from the international liberal you know, market economy to that directed economy, that was tied in with a growth in dictatorial or authoritarian tendencies. You look at the Duterte, for instance, in the Philippines, while he's, he or Erdogan in Turkey, they represent the new leaders who think that the Chinese model of authoritarian regime is exactly what, what suits them. And that's where the world is turning. And meanwhile, the Chinese are exercising more and more influence in Africa and in Latin America. I think, I, I don't know what I've asked you, do you know how much uh, China is going to invest in Latin America over the next 10 years? No. Half a trillion dollars. <laughs> if that doesn't scare you, no. or if that, maybe it rejoices you, because hopefully it will help the people. The problem is very often the Chinese invest in countries in things that they like, not necessarily what the people like. Uh, in regard to the CFO case of Huawei, yeah. do you think she will end up in the United States? I will put a bet against yours, 90% yes. 90% chance she will be in yeah. the United States. How will that change the game? Um, it will, in terms of Canada-China, uh, it won't change much the position of China towards us because they really have them in, 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 our, in their target. Uh, and I don't, it's going to take a long while before China and, and Canada settle 
to to back to normal relationship. I think that the Chinese will remain myth for quite a long while. Uh, maybe oil and gas may attract them more, and that is the only reason why it would change, if at all. Uh, so the game will change because it will be in the U.S., and there I'm pretty convinced that it won't take much for Mrs. Meng to actually be released by the U.S. because it will be part of a deal, mm. and they'll find a nice reason to say there was a, there was a legal technicality that didn't work out, and so she's free. Ferry DeKirchhoff has been with us, Senior Fellow, Faculty of Social Sciences, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa. Ferry, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. With pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It has been an odd day for uh, yesterday for uh, Canadian politics as the former Liberal candidate in the Burnaby by-election held a media scrum to try to explain uh, a recent uh, post that she had written and got in trouble for and lost her candidacy uh, in in NRAM. And then it sort of went downhill from there. Uh, basically, what happened is uh, a by-election called running in this uh, by-election, Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the federal NDP party, uh, as well, Karen Wang, who is the liberal candidate for uh, this riding, who is running against Jagmeet Singh. And what happened was uh, uh, Karen Wang in a... Uh, um, in, in, in a blog post wrote in Mandarin, if we can increase the voting rate as only the Chinese candidate, let me start again, quote, if we can increase the voting rate as the only Chinese candidate in this riding, if I can garner 16,000 votes, I will easily win the by-election, control the election race and make history. My opponent in this by-election is the NDP candidate Singh of Indian descent. Uh, in response to that, uh, uh, the Liberal Party said, you're out. We don't. Uh, actually, she resigned and then tried to get back in. The Liberal Party said, no, we're not interested. Uh, she went on to say, uh, quote, it really makes uh, makes me hurt and I feel as if I'm abused. This is not me at all. I am not a racist. Uh, in a letter to uh, the Prime Minister and uh, the Liberal Party, she wrote that she would like to withdraw her resignation, arguing that her post was, quote, merely a statement of fact and was not meant to be a racial comment. To talk more about all of this, Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, has served as an advisor to a National Party leader and federal cabinet ministers and with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. Who knew this by-election was going to be so entertaining? I mean, the original focus, of course, was a premise was a simple one. Will Singh win or not, and what will happen to the NTP? And now we got the, the, the Karen Wang show, which is some show. Uh, so I guess it's pretty safe to say Jagmeet Singh is in, or is it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I nothing's ever been clear for Mr. Singh. Uh, he's had some troubles, as you know. So, yeah. But this would uh, enhance his odds. Of course, um, as, as you know, and probably some of your listeners, one of the conspiracy theories floating around there is the liberals aren't really heartbroken over all of this because they want Mr. Singh in Parliament anyway. Uh, because I don't know. Is a, this a good way to do it, though? <laughs> well... It's not the preferable way, but, you know, again, yeah, it's Ottawa. So or I'm talking to you from Ottawa where, you know, conspiracy and delusion go hand in hand. And uh, 
the, the theory goes, oh, look, uh, the Liberals got this candidate in there. She passed their screening process. Maybe she shouldn't. They should have listened to some of the locals. But uh, nonetheless, when it was exposed, her comments were exposed. They acted forcefully, and now Mr. Singh is in. It's all a little too convenient to be believable. Uh, and, yeah, it's never great for a party and a party leader when uh, a story about a candidate's poorly chosen offensive words is still in circulation two or three days later. I found it interesting. Uh, I found it almost as amusing uh, to the comment uh, what, how people reacted to it the day of or next day. Some uh, This is a misstep, just a political misstep. I'm thinking, well, you don't resign, step down, or quit over a misstep. That's something you apologize for and move on. Is this a, a misstep or a car crash or a train wreck? <laughs> Um, you know what it's like? I'm going to use a different metaphor. How about this? Uh, she reminds me in this whole saga of uh, Chemical Ali as Baghdad was falling. The American troops were behind him. And he said, there's nothing to see here. It's okay. It's all under control. Baghdad remains in Iraqi hands. Well, not quite. Um I, the the backstory on this seems to be that the national liberal campaign was warned that uh, this candidate had troubles. Uh, she had a bit of a history of of being difficult to deal with in a political sense. So that was my next question. What is the backstory here on her? Um, I guess she'd run provincially and uh, for, for the BC Liberal Party. Uh, she'd put her hand up to run for the Conservatives. Uh, in the reports that I've seen, there weren't necessarily specific incidences that were cited, but they, I, I think, to paraphrase, she was difficult to keep on message. Uh, she was was erratic, uh, and as you know, um, political parties and leaders like more disciplined candidates, ones that they can control, for want of a better term. So she was none of those things. I don't know if there was any um, commentary before out there about whether or not she engaged in you know a very harsh version of identity politics which she clearly was and that was you know a pretty near racist if it wasn't outright racist uh, so none of that was necessarily known but there were warning signs uh, and uh, there was a contested nomination so she won that um, and you know you should know the history of these things or the the current operating practice every party will have tensions between the local campaign and the national campaign. So that's not to give the liberals a free pass here. Uh, but if they had done some digging, they would have found out there were, there, you know, there were concerns. Uh, and the conservatives didn't want her, and maybe that should have been, <laughs> been a big red warning flag for the liberal party. What about Wang's handling of all this? Um, uh, she said that she's feeling abused. She said that she was merely, uh, it was merely a statement of fact. What about how she handled all of this? Oh, disaster. I, I, I mean, I, I saw bits and pieces of her press conference yesterday uh, saying, you know, because she was effectively saying because she was Chinese, she was misunderstood. I mean, I, I think that offends a lot of people, and Chinese people in particular. Um, uh, then I saw one version where she said, oh, it was actually a volunteer who did this. So from a, any sort of metric, she looks unfit <clears throat> to serve in an elected office, blaming staff, blaming, 
you know, her 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 ethnic background. It just just was crazy stuff. I think she tried to have it in front of a library, and at one point, yeah, the librarian came out and said, "You can't do it." I mean, yeah, for for the liberals who are having a caucus retreat, as you know, in Sherbrooke, and hoping that more of what they're saying on China and talks they're having about the economy would get attention, this has become a more dominant political story, so that's a loser for them on that front. I mean, it's also kind of funny, I I think, for uh, people in other parties as we begin the 2019 electoral season that it's the liberals who are very... um, condescending about candidate troubles and other parties are the first ones to have that uh, the, the, a candidate problem emerge. So maybe a little bit of karma there. Uh, what it may mean in the broader scheme of things, who knows? Um, but as you say, it probably does ensure that Mr. Singh uh, gets in, in Parliament now because liberals aren't rushing to fill uh, that, uh, that vacancy. I, uh, we can't pretend to know what um, uh, Ms. Wang's motives were here, but clearly there was intent or she wouldn't have written it down the way she did. did do you think she just assumed that this would be viewed by only those within her community? Well, that's extremely naive, right? Um, when you become a candidate for public office, everything you've ever written, said, or done in a public form, uh, particularly ones where there is a, an archival record uh, that can be achieved by going onto that thing called Google. Which is why I'll never be a politician, by the way. <laughs> uh, you know, it's going to get found out. So it's pretty starking, uh, starkly naive. And again, maybe that speaks to her Elect, uh, her electability. That's not to say, look, lots of us, of course, have said and done things maybe we wish we hadn't, but sure. um, but I think in in this case, it's really hard to take her at her word that this was some sort of, and her words change, so you don't know which word to take, that you know, this is some sort of cultural dynamic, and you need to be aware of that. Well, uh, being from Newfoundland, I could use that all the time. I don't usually, when I tell someone to shag off, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> using the S word instead of the F word, but they get what it means. Uh, what about the? You mentioned this earlier. The campaign volunteer, not me. Can, can you can you use that excuse? Oh, that's lame, right? I I think everybody finds it offensive when you start blaming staff and and, and blaming a volunteer. Again, maybe that's true, but why didn't she say that in the beginning? You you could have framed that differently and said, look. I've got a well-meaning team here. Unfortunately, a mistake was made by one of my team members. I uh, It was done in my name. I assume that responsibility. That would have been a better way to handle it. But the way she said, oh, no, it was a volunteer, was it me? Well, then what kind of people? It, it begs the question, well, okay, well, then what kind of people are you bringing on with you? It, asks, it, it creates more questions than answers. What about the Liberal Party in all of this, who are obviously trying to distance distance themselves from the whole thing? What does this say uh, about uh, them vetting her and then their reaction afterwards? 
fail uh, on that. I mean, they're going to, every time you have one of these, as they call them, candidate eruptions, um, and somebody slips through the crack, you, uh, you you have to go back and look at your system and say, all right, was there something I missed? Was there somebody I wasn't, I didn't talk to? I mean, it's probably a very localized issue as it relates to the next, the next election campaign. There's the by-election now. So if they want to win this seat in the general election, they probably have to build a bit more of a more productive relationship with a local campaign and try and identify a candidate for, for next go-around because some of those seats in B.C. might matter whether the Liberals keep or lose their majority. Uh, does any of what happened to the Huawei CFO play into this? Hmm. I don't think so. Um, I... Is she using that as an excuse that this is reverse racism? I haven't seen them. Well, maybe you're giving her a new reason that'll come out later, Scott. Um, I haven't. I, no, that that one's a stretch. The only way that so far what's happened to the Huawei CFO has been connected to this by-election relates to the interview that uh, Jagmeet Singh did the other day with Question Period and uh, and his reframing, retelling of, of why he wasn't able to answer the question as to what would he, he would do in relation to China after that. Uh, I, I think she was playing to the fact that in that riding, as I understand it, 40% of the population is of Chinese origin. So I'm assuming she was making the argument, because I'm Chinese, I can better represent you, which is a different argument uh, than, than the, the one about Chinese, the gov- relationship with the government of China. Uh, what was you were talking about Jagmeet Singh's reaction on question period? I missed that. What was that? Oh, that's quite a funny one. I mean, he's lucky this Wang thing has came up. So he was he had done an interview with Evan Solomon. Uh, Evan, of course, is the host, yeah. and Evan had asked him about. Uh, everything that was unfolding in relation to Canadian-Chinese relationships, uh, the Canadian-Chinese relationship, and because he is running in B.C., and this is obviously an issue that's centered there because that's where the Huawei CFO is, he he gave what was effectively a nonsensical or incomprehensible answer. So uh, initially, the NDP didn't say anything about it, or Mr. Singh didn't say anything about it, but as controversy came forward and people criticized him for it, about a day later, a day and a half later, he said, oh, I didn't hear the question properly. Uh, And as you know, as a host, normally if you pose a question and me or anybody else you're interviewing doesn't hear it, they will tell you right away, oh, sorry, could you repeat that again? That didn't happen at that point. Oh. All right. Um, so uh, I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on where the discussions are going or have gone in regard to uh, the detainment of the Canadians in China and, of course, one that is uh, now on death row. Where are we heading here? Uh, nowhere obvious at the moment. Um, it's certainly the rhetoric is heated. We You talk about bizarre press conferences. I guess yesterday was the day to have them. The uh, Chinese ambassador to Canada had one here in Ottawa, and he uh, he was quite threatening, I think. Uh, Very aggressive. What, how, how do you think that was received? 
Not well. Um, I, and I don't know what audience he's targeting. If it's a home audience in China, maybe. But if it's a Canadian audience that wants to, uh, he wants to mobilize to move, I think he, he did the complete opposite. He maybe hardened some opinions in the Canadian public who, uh, who, who want to be more flexible. So I think he failed in that regard. Um, I, I will just say this, and I, and I think it was instructive for me. I was talking to a, uh, a senior diplomat in, in one of our allied nations who has uh, challenges with China as well. Uh, and he made the point to me, and others have, that, look, if you're going to get a solution here, you have to recognize that the way to deal with the Chinese government is in the back room, and everybody needs to be able to save face. And I think that is true, and I'm sure there are backroom discussions going on, uh, but nobody has yet identified where is the place that common ground can be found right now. It's not going to be around granting Huawei uh, work in Canada. That won't be it. And the Chinese have signaled that out publicly as a, as a key element for them. So I, I'm sure there are people in our foreign affairs department and even in the Chinese government are trying to find a way to find a resolution here. And it may be months before we actually know what that resolution is once they find it, if they do find it. Has, uh, have Canadians' perception of China changed? How damaging has this been for them? Again, I have to believe it's been fairly damaging uh, because there's been a belligerence to all of this as well. I mean, you and I have talked about it on this show. Uh, Canadians were focusing their anger and frustration at the way Donald Trump behaves. Now the Chinese behavior makes Donald Trump's behavior. Choir boy. You know, less offensive. Yeah. And the, 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 the Chinese had a great, have had a great opportunity with the erratic, belligerent behavior of Mr. Trump to make an argument, hey, we're stable business partners. We, you should be looking at us. Come do business with us. Instead, they've taken a bit of a bully boy approach, which I don't think is helping them in Canada. And China doesn't seem to care about this, especially when you're talking about that, that press conference uh, yesterday. I mean, he, as you said, he was very belligerent. Yeah, although, again, a bizarre moment where at one point he said, oh, but, you know, we love you, Canada. We value the trade relationship. Okay, but you have to recognize, as we do, when you go out on a limb and you start uttering threats, people aren't going to forget about them quickly, and it's all in how you deliver your message. So that's fine to say afterwards, but... It's extremely unusual, so your your listeners should understand. I mean, the Chinese ambassador to Canada, you, you I, I can't remember the last time they did a, a press conference, public press conference. So that's a, a pretty direct move. They don't, as I said, they don't like to do diplomacy in the front room. So, uh, yeah, I, I just don't see any of this as helpful right now. Any more on the fate of Robert Schellenberg? Uh, will he? Is it just a matter of days before he is killed? It was he had ten days to appeal. That was a few days ago. Uh, where are we now? The la- the only thing I know that is current is Canada's ambassador to China, the former um, cabinet yeah. minister, Mr. McCallum, is here in Canada. He is briefing the cabinet today, who are in Sherbrooke at a retreat on what is happening. I don't know if we'll hear something uh, after that about what the next steps may be, but that's what I would be paying attention to right now. Uh, if he is killed, where does that leave this discussion? 
I, I think it, it just makes things more difficult, and it, it creates uh, a, a longer road back uh, for the Canada-Chinese relationship. Uh, what does that? What will happen if the CFO is not released or is in fact extradited to the United States? Will this just May continue? Take some of the pressure off Canada, um, uh, because then you know we simply were fulfilling our duty, which I don't think anybody suggests we shouldn't. Uh, will will the, she be extradited to the U.S.? Do you think? Uh, I, I assume if all the if the Americans wish to continue with the extradition and all of the documentation required is in order, then why wouldn't the rule of law be followed? But you talk about weird. Uh, here you had her father, the the founder of Huawei, coming over and talking about how good the Canadian judicial system is and how good it's been to her. So many mixed messages. That is a little bizarre. I thought so, too. Tim Powers is with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, has worked as an advisor to a National Party leader and Federal Cabinet Ministers. Tim, as always, great conversation. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a good weekend, Scott. Take you- care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We certainly know uh, what has happened over the last several weeks in regard to uh, the shutting down of Oshawa General Motors uh, operations, uh, that along with four operations uh, in North America, in the United States uh, as well. Of course, this has been a very contentious issue, very sad issue for those in uh, Oshawa who are losing their jobs, 2,500 uh, unionized employees as the last of General Motors assembly plant uh, leaves that city. Uh, that being said, uh, the the leader of their union, Unifor, uh, Jerry Diaz, uh, has been continually trying to save the plant and is vowing that uh, the Detroit International Auto Show, which is on now, this is the big one uh, in the United States, It's he is vowing that uh, it will be the worst for General Motors. To talk more about all of that, Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, and he is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. So we're certainly uh, hearing lots of of rhetoric and and lots of uh, uh, yelling back and forth. Uh, Do we know if uh, the union is expending as much energy to help these workers transition to another job as they are trying to keep the jobs that are already that have already left? Mm -hmm. So the way the way I'd answer that question is that the the jobs won't leave until the end of this year, and that's really when the transition starts to kick in in the third and fourth quarter of 2019. And, and Jerry Diaz would say, if I focus my energies there, I'm admitting defeat. I'm admitting that GM has every right to close this plant, and I'm going to fight that as long as I can. Uh, now, at what point will he change his tune? I don't know. But I would say for the moment, it's not that he's ignoring the transition, but that's not where he's putting his energy. He's putting his energy to try to avoid a transition in the first place. Um, how and what can he do at the Detroit <laughs> Auto Show that is going to make it the worst one ever for General Motors? Yeah, there's that is the $64,000 question. So let me come at this a couple of ways if I can. First, let me contrast what he's doing to the United Auto Workers, the equivalent union in the United States. They're not happy about losing four plants. They've actually called on a public boycott of the Chevrolet Blazer. This is a kind of a crossover SUV, but... It is totally made in Mexico. And they're saying, Americans, if you want to protect jobs in America, don't buy the Blazers. Interestingly, Jerry Diaz has not called for any kind of a boycott of General Motors product. He has called on General Motors to move, shift, 
blazer production from Mexico to Oshawa, a move which GM has said no to. So then he went on to say that this auto show is going to be the worst ever for GM. And, and here's his problem. Already it's a sideshow, Scott. Uh, for instance, yesterday and today, an environmental group is protesting, not General Motors, but Ford, by having a large a Tyrannosaurus Rex uh, around the grounds of the automobile show. Why a Tyrannosaurus Rex? Well, it's estimated in history the Tyrannosaurus Rex, Rex weighed about nine tons, and that's how much pollution the Ford SUV releases to the environment every year. So, you know, it's like you're giving birth to a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Hmm. You've got them going on. Then there's a prayer group meeting. They're having uh, an outdoor prayer candle vigil for workers, jobs, and people who've been injured on the job. And then you've got GM trying to bring, you know, its uh, people in protesting. So if I'm attending that automobile show, there is a sideshow of protests, but I don't know how much Jerry's stands out over everybody else's. And inside, nothing's really changed. So once you, if, if I'm attending the show and I get past those protesters, inside it is the same glitzy, glamorous, glorious thing that it's always been in the past it's not clear to me this is at all the worst ever for gm and i don't know if he's got any tricks up his sleeve for later today or tomorrow maybe maybe he has got something bigger but i can't imagine what it is that's really going to disrupt this in any big way what about wildcat strikes well fair enough and and there's, we've seen that we've seen that first at the gm plant in oshawa itself either uh, uh, people not reporting to work or work slowing down the work and, you know, I, I hate to say it like this, but it, to me it almost feels then like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It gives the company even more reasons to accelerate the timetable to shut it down. Uh, we've also seen some suppliers to GM, uh, uh, their unionized work go off. So there was a company in, in Windsor who supplies parts to GM factories, and they staged a, a one-day wildcat strike to teach GM a lesson. But it's not clear that any of this is changing anybody's perception Mary Barra has not changed her tune one iota over the last six weeks and remains absolutely adamant she's not cracking any doors open. So is this like Trump on the wall and the shutdown of the American government? No one seems to be blinking at this point. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, one plant here, four in the United States. Right. Where is the UAW on this? Uh, is what Unifor is doing counterproductive to what the UAW is doing? Why don't the two of them get together? Yeah, so, I mean, that's a good question. Neither side is happy. As I say, the UAW has called for a boycott of GM products. Jerry Diaz has not caused, called for that. But I think why Jerry Diaz is doing his own thing separate from the UAW is that Unifor is the name of a relatively new union. You might remember it was a result of a merger of a couple of unions just a few years ago. And I think it's very keen in his mind to have a different presence to say this isn't the old Canadian Auto Workers Union. This is a different union. We're taking a different tack, and I'm a different leader. And, and so he's trying to show value added to all those people who are paying union dues by fighting the way he is. Now, he, he's trying his strategy. Part of that was to try to get both the province and the federal government on board. He's met with Doug Ford this week. He met with Navdeep Baines, who's the Minister of uh, Industry and Technology. Federal Minister of Industry and Technology. Um, he came out of those meetings very positive, saying, okay, we've got an alliance. The province and the feds are behind us 100%. When you ask the feds and the province, they went, well, yeah, yeah, if GM wants to change his minds, we'd be happy to talk about 
you know, financing or grants or what we could do to support them. But we're also concerned about the workers and their transition, and we're also concerned about who might occupy that space to make sure it doesn't become a ghost town in Oshawa. I don't think when they were confronted with Jerry Diaz's rhetoric, they were quite as quick to jump on board and be part of this alliance. They're not fighting against him, especially the federal government, knowing there's an election this fall, but they're actually not toe-to-toe marching shoulder-to-shoulder either. Uh, and, and and really, GM hasn't really shown any sign that they're looking for any sort of deal or looking no. for any hand. They don't want the money. No, in fact, just against everyone understands this, GM is a very profitable company. This isn't their move to close these plants isn't because they're on shaky ground. This is not like a Sears story where the company is in financial ground and has to close some things just to stay afloat. They're actually headed towards probably a record year of profits, already a $6 billion profit in the first three quarters of 2018. We won't know the 2019 or the, excuse me, the last quarter numbers for another month or so, but could very conceivably be an $8 billion profit. But Mary Barrett would tell you it's not enough because this market is undergoing a major shakeup. It may not be apparent to you and I, but as she sits there as head of C- as CEO of GM, she's aware that in the next five years she may be facing competition from Google may be in the car-making business. Obviously, Tesla's in the car-making business. Uber wants to get into the car-making business. Apple wants to get into the car-making business. Wow, when you start to hear those kinds of people saying, we want to get in, this isn't the old club that you had before. So they feel they need to develop a war chest, cash that they can put either to research and development new products or promote new products. I'll tell you this, Scott, in 2019, GM is actually also going to tell you that it's going to cancel some models. Not only is it closing these plants, but it's going to cancel some models to really retrench to the ground they feel they can defend at the highest level possible to what they see as an army attacking it over these next few years. Um. In regard to uh, the unions, does 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 the UAW care about plant closures in Canada? No. Um, any of that? No. So they're they're concerned because, of course, there are four plants that are closing in the United States, and in fact, there's one in the Detroit area. I can't quite give you the name of the town. It's something like Tamarack or Tamarank or or something to that effect. Uh, and so they are very much focused on their four and and. Maybe this is good or bad news, but it's now every man for themselves. So, you know, yeah, too bad for you, Canada, but we're focusing on our four. There's also an international plant somewhere that's closing. I want to tell you maybe it's somewhere in Europe. Nobody cares about it. Everyone's under their own little fight at the moment. Uh, for, so, so for GM, there is no unified front. Uh, it's not an attack against one. It's an attack against us all. We're all out for our own territory. Um, but the UAW is concerned, and like Jerry Diaz, they say, you know, the problem here, GM, is first off, it's corporate greed. $6 billion profit isn't enough for you. You want even more, you evil, evil people that you are. Uh, and secondly, they point to Mexico. You've built some new factories in Mexico. You've shifted production to Mexico. That should all come back, in their case, they're saying, to the United States. And GM says, no, no, we, we did this investment. We like where it is. We like where we're going, and, and we're not planning to change our minds. Uh, is this all about Mexico? Because a lot of uh, there's been a lot of production in the southern U.S. as well. Is, has there not? Yeah, so you're not, you're not completely wrong here. I, I wouldn't even say it's all about Mexico. What it is about is that our tastes as consumers have changed. So the plant in Oshawa is a prime example of it. It makes a car, the Cadillac CTS, and I want to tell you it's the Chevrolet Impala. These are cars, traditional cars. And uh, at its height, they were producing a million of them a year. 
in the current year that's just coming to an end, production is coming to an end, they'll be lucky to do 100,000. That's 10% of what they use to manufacture. Well, why are they producing so few? I would love to tell you it's because they've shifted all the production of those Impalas and Cadillacs to Mexico, but that's not the case. It really represents what we're buying. And we consumers, for whatever reason, have turned our backs on traditional cars and it's into these things they call crossover vehicles, which are kind of half SUVs, half cars, uh, sit a little higher, so as you get older, they're a little easier to get into and out of. Uh, if you've got a family, a little easier to transport stuff without necessarily going to the magic van or the, the wagon kind of a thing. And that's where we're going. Are they fuel efficient? No, not as much as a car. But gasoline prices have come down. Oil prices have come down. We have very, very short-term memories. We're not remembering when oil was a dollar. Excuse me, gasoline was a dollar twenty-five a liter. We're now focused on where we can get it for nearly ninety cents a liter. So that's what we're buying at the moment, and GM is, is responding to our changes in consumer demand. Now, Jerry Diaz is not wrong. Oshawa does have flexible manufacturing. Now, you could shut it down for three months, reprogram all the computers and other things you have there to produce a different line. And, yes, you could in three months, six months from the end of, um, uh, end of December, produce a different car there or a different model, a different vehicle completely. But GM says no. Uh, the way we've done this is we make each plant a specialty onto itself. We make those things there and these things here and those things over there. And if, if your product is starting to die in the minds of the consumers, then you live with that, and that's why they're closing it. Uh, as you mentioned, we know that uh, with this uh, Detroit Auto Show that both federal and provincial leaders uh, met with those in industry, uh, and, and Jerry Diaz was, was a part of that, hoping for uh, uh, some more help or good news to right. take to his members. That being said, obviously came up dry there. What was the objective? What's the purpose of this meeting for those leaders and, and meeting with these, uh, these CFOs or CEOs of, of these companies right. in, in Detroit? So I think why both the province and the federal government was there was, yes, to find out if GM was prepared to change his mind, but they spoke to other car manufacturers. So let me just recast this problem from Oshawa's perspective. I would prefer it. Plan A, Oshawa stay, bring production back to a million cars, rehire some of the people you've laid off and keep going. But if Plan A is not going to come back, if there is no way for Plan A, then the worst Plan B would be for the whole thing to be shuttered up sitting there empty. If it's possible, if GM no longer sees value in that factory and no longer sees value in manufacturing in Oshawa, is there the possibility of another company? Now, Scott, you're not going to read about this in the paper because these kinds of discussions are super secret, super hush-hush. No one wants to reveal their plans in advance, but I guarantee you that Doug Ford and Navdeep Baines were meeting not just with GM but other car companies to say, all right, is there a chance that you're interested in making some cars in Canada? To give you a quick example, although I think he was grandstanding at the time, Mr. Elon Musk, the man behind Tesla, had said, well, you know, if GM is closing some factories, maybe I should buy one or two of them and shift production of my vehicles there or add production of my vehicles there. That's not such a crazy idea. And if I were Canada, I'd say, okay, Elon, I'll take you at your word. Now, what would it take to get you to come to Oshawa? Or, as you may also know, <laughs> in mid-December, we were to be toured by a Chinese auto manufacturer interested in making vehicles on this side of the pond. Now, that has not happened. It's officially been postponed because our relations with China have gotten a little tense in the last few weeks. And I don't think that's going to change in the next couple of weeks. But if I was uh, the Canadian representatives, I've got the welcome mat out for anyone who might want to explore 
and use the bad news of GM to be good news for them. So I think that's why they were there. Jerry Diaz has a single mission, but if I'm the province of the federal government, I have multiple missions to keep manufacturing strong in Ontario. Um, is GM spending elsewhere in Ontario? Are we losing assembly jobs but getting others? Yes. The short answer to that question is yes. So in Markham, they have a, a basically a research and development facility, and they've announced that almost simultaneously with these job losses in Oshawa, these manufacturing losses, they're going to add 500 jobs to this research and development facility. Now, these are uh, jobs that are going to require at least a bachelor's degree, if not likely master's degrees and PhDs in fields like engineering and science as they try to solve various problems confronting the cars, not of today, but the cars of tomorrow. So whether that's the self-driving car, the electric vehicle, you know, there are two big problems today with electric vehicles that we still haven't quite got past. One is how long you run the vehicle on a charge. Uh, it's not so much measured in hours, but in distance, 300 kilometers seems to be the max. And for many people, that's just not enough. We need the electric vehicle to get closer to 500 kilometers. Then that seems to be economically viable. And then the second problem is to recharge the battery. Uh, you know, yes, I can plug it in and it'll recharge overnight. That's lovely as I'm commuting from home. But if I'm driving to Florida, I drive 500 kilometers, then I have to wait eight hours for the battery to recharge. That's not good enough. So these are some of the challenges they're waiting to solve. On the autonomous vehicle, I think the biggest challenge is uh, what happens when somebody looks like they're going to hit you. In other words, the car isn't at fault, but another party is. Now, if I'm driving the car today, I take defensive actions, and I have to weigh the defensive action to save my life versus the other car. But a computer, they have to make that decision. You've got to program that in somehow. Is it better to hit the school bus and endanger 34 children, or is it better for me to go into the ditch and endanger my own life? These are some of the things you have to program into self-driving vehicles, What the sort of what-ifs when bad things happen. So there's still lots of work to be done there, and Markham's going to get 500 jobs. The problem, Scott, is the people who are being laid off in Oshawa don't make that transition to the Markham jobs. Mm -hmm. They don't have the education, the background. Now, we can support them and offer them retraining, and maybe someone will do this if you're 28 and, okay, I'll, I'll get a degree in engineering or something. But if I'm 52, I, you know, I'm not going to take another four years to go back to school. And so there the problem is retraining for what already exists. Uh, so it would look like all of this is for naught uh, other than, you know, trying right till the bitter end. Right. How does Unifor position this loss if eventually it goes the way we all, uh, all, all think it is? Is, is he in, at risk of over-promising and under-delivering here? Well, uh, yes. I mean, the short answer to that is yes. The longer answer is at some point Jerry's going to have to say, okay, folks, I did everything I could, and he'll rhyme it all off. He'll publish it in a newsletter, and he will say, you know, I'm still fighting up till December 30th, but if they're closing at December 31st, now I've got to help you boys translate to another thing or you people translate to another job and transfer it accordingly. I just don't think he's prepared to give up on that. I think he will as we approach the third quarter and fourth quarter of this year, but until then he doesn't want to be seen as giving up. And also, look, if I'm contributing union dues, I don't want him to give up. I want him to keep fighting. I guarantee you if I work for Unifor, Jerry Diaz has gone up in spades in my book. He's really doing uh, plenty for me, even if he hasn't produced results, because he's telling me what I want to hear. In, in a way, Jerry Diaz, I hate to make this comparison, is a bit like Donald Trump 
for his constituency, he's telling them what they want to hear. I'm not his constituency, and I can tell you he's full of hot air and nothing's going to happen, but I'm not his constituency. His constituency love what Jerry is doing at the moment. That being said, would they not love more if he brought, as you mentioned, a prospect in to say, hey, maybe we can fill uh, this plant with these jobs? He would, although I don't think that's really uh, what he gets paid to do. His, so that's really the minister, Navdeep Baines or Doug Ford or the mayor of Oshawa. That's really their job to put out the welcome mat because he, he doesn't have any control over that. So, you know, he will certainly try not to put roadblocks in. If, say, a Chinese automaker wants to come to Oshawa, his job would then be to welcome them and, and, and find a way to work with them rather than putting up roadblocks. But I think for the moment, he's doing the right thing. It's his job to protect the jobs, to fight against the job losses. He's, there's lots of other people who are going to look to replace those jobs. He just doesn't want to admit it going. I think part of this, he feels, is also a personal betrayal. Yeah. In the last contract that they signed with GM, GM had promised no job losses over the over the contract, and he feels this is a betrayal of that language. They're going but to doesn't that contract expire at the same time anyway? <laughs> well, it does, but they're also going to say, we made that promise not realizing, this is like uh, U.S. Steel to Hamilton, You know, we promised to grow the steel market, but we didn't foresee the recession. We can't hold me to a promise when I couldn't foresee. In the case of GM, they're going to say, you can't hold me to this because I didn't foresee this big change to crossover vehicles. It comes as a shock to all of us. I'm not going to make cars just to put them in inventory. We've got to sell them. So they've got a way out, but Jerry, I think, feels very personally uh, personally taken upon in this contract negotiation. And you can understand that. Uh, Marvin Ryder, business professor, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. Will do. Try hard. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.